This podcast is a 98 Studios production. Hey, it's Christy. Welcome back to Do The Work. Today and every day, we will talk about things that really matter. You, your thoughts, your feelings, and your experiences. Relationships are what matter most, and they can be complicated. If you'd like a better connection with yourself, with others, and with God, you are in the right place. So glad you're here. Welcome back to Do The Work. You've celebrated Christmas. We've all celebrated Christmas. And I'm excited today to invite you to sit down, grab a blanket, a good snack, a drink, and review with us the book, Beautiful Outlaw by John Eldridge. My book review podcast is quickly becoming one of my favorites. I love to learn and read, and I especially love to read with others and discuss what we liked and didn't like, what we learned, and what we wish we never knew. To learn with someone else increases the experience exponentially. That is why I am so happy to be here again with two wonderful women, Sarah Abbott and Nancy Haight. I'm so grateful to have you both here. Thank you for coming. Will you guys introduce yourselves? You can tell us everything you want us to know. <laughs> How, who wants to start? Sarah. Okay. So, yeah, I'm Sarah Abbott. And um, because of the subject of this book, I thought that I would start off by saying I love talking to people about what they believe and what matters most. That's um, true. I am not very good at small talk or meeting people, but if you'll dive into the deep matters with me, then I can talk to you forever. So I'm excited to talk about this, about Jesus, because he is one of the things that matters most to me. I am married to my best friend. I met him when I was 11, and in a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating 23 years of marriage together. Together, we have four boys that are completely different, but all totally awesome. So that's what I love to do on my free time is spend time with them. And lastly, as a family and personally, I love just to be outdoors. I love everything in nature, animals, the beauty, and I especially love it here in Utah. So. Sarah, that was a true and accurate description of you. Small talk's not easy for me. Yeah. So that translated to my kids were a little scared of Sarah when we first moved in the neighborhood. <laughs> well, Brandon did run over my kids' bikes. So. <laughs> he did? Yes. You made him come apologize. Oh, good. <laughs> Brandon, you're grounded. No, it was awesome. <laughs> anyway, truly one of the deepest, most sincere people that I know and uh so happy to have you here to talk about real things. In fact, Sarah's had me read some of the books that I would probably never have picked up. Okay, Nancy. Okay, my name is Nancy Haight, and I am a Bay Area native. I moved here to Utah about eight and a half years ago, and I met Christy probably about six years ago, I mm -hmm. think. I am the fifth of six kids. I um, studied at BYU many years ago, and then I lived in the Bay Area and taught middle school for a really long time. And uh, when I came back here, I actually had gone through a divorce and lost my mom, and I actually met someone that I was dating at the time and I'm now married to. And as I've reflected back on my life, the, the themes that always come up are that I love learning, I love language, and I love language because it brings me to people and cultures and and travel. And I feel as if I sort of came home at the age of 50 when I married my husband and inherited three wonderful adult children through him. I became a mom, basically, with the day we got married. I became a grandma three months later. I, I Everything's a little bit out of order for me, but um, my greatest joy in life regardless of the setting, is connecting very deeply with others. So, Sarah, I know that I would enjoy, I will enjoy talking to you. And and um, if you guys go to lunch without me, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit about me. That's beautiful. Those three kids won the lottery the day <laughs> you married your husband. You know, as you were both describing yourselves, I thought that, that's interesting. You love talking about real things. That's where you're most comfortable is talking about the things that matter most to us as humans. So this book, it's no surprise that both of you said, yeah, yeah, I'd like to talk about this book. I chose to discuss this book for a few reasons. First and foremost, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he is the Son of God and my Savior and yours. And I believe that he is constantly inviting us to know him, to come closer to him, to connect with him. 
And though he continues to invite, sometimes we don't know how to move closer or to connect, or we don't really believe him, or we think he wants that for everyone else but us. We know we want to, or we think we might want to, but we aren't always sure how. As you know, we're whole people. We're not flat Stanleys. We are physical, spiritual, social, intellectual, and emotional individuals, and we are responsible to care for our whole person. When I'm with a client and we do a check-in, which is where we check in, how do I feel physically? How do I feel spiritually? How do I feel socially? How do I feel emotionally? Spiritually is often where they will get caught up. It's confusing for them. And often before I can explain what I'm asking for, they'll begin to tell me, tell me what they're not doing. They're not praying enough or reading their scriptures enough or serving enough or going to their religious meetings enough. I'll tell them that we can talk about all of that if they want to. But what I'm asking for is how is your relationship with God, with your Savior? That's often something that they don't have, that they haven't given much thought to because they've been busy worrying about or trying to stuff the shame of the things they're not doing that I mentioned above, praying, studying scriptures, ser- serving and attending religious meetings are all things that can help us know our Savior better. But often they don't. Often these very things that were meant to bring us closer to Christ actually put distance between us because we think of them as something that we do to earn Christ's love instead of practice. Practices that help us become more like Him and closer to Him. That's why I picked this book. I picked this book because it takes away everything. And and Mr. Eldridge just presents with, this is who Jesus Christ is. So I'm going to start with a doozy this morning, you guys. <laughs> um, I agree with Mr. Eldridge's statement, and at times I've been the one he's speaking of here. Consider this one piece of evidence. Millions of people who have spent years attending church, and yet they don't know God. Their heads are filled with stuffing about Jesus, but they do not experience him, not as the boys did on the beach. What are your thoughts? It spoke to me as well because I grew up going to church my entire life. I'm 54 years old now. But I think the thing that is so interesting is that I always loved going to church. I loved being with my family. I loved the people I met there. There was something about it that spoke to me. And so it, it's not that that whole period of time was negative, and for me at least. Mm. But what I have found as I've gotten older and been through some pretty painful experiences, it was actually through my painful experiences that I had pretty much everything taken away in a sense, and it allowed me to finally get to know Jesus Christ. Mm. And that was in my early 40s. And it's not to say I didn't have real touches with him all along. I did, but it kind of finally gave me permission because I had nothing else. I literally had nothing else for a while. I lost my mother and I had gone through divorce and and I was really reeling mm-hmm. and not sure what what was the rest of my life going to be. I think I loved this book so much and I loved the way he talks about things because I honestly feel like there's if there's anything that will allow me to come to know Jesus Christ better— I am all for it. And it it doesn't matter what the format is or or um, exactly what's said, because if I can glean the parts that are going to allow me to be closer to Jesus Christ, I'm all about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was a big difference for me between going and performing all the things that, you know, going to church or reading in my scriptures or saying my prayers, not to say that they weren't ever meaningful. It's really not that. But I did not understand or associate Christ's role in all of that for me and have that day-to-day relationship that I feel like I'm much more aware of and trying to build now. Yeah, really insightful. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. As I read that quote or you listened to you, and there's two thoughts that came to my mind in that. I think in the book he was using this a little bit as an attack against religion, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if we can blame religion for us not having a relationship with Christ because it is a totally personal, intimate choice. So I think it's a facilitator to having that relationship. But if you choose not to, then it doesn't matter how long you go to church. And like Nancy said, I grew up going to church, going through the motions, but not until I chose to seek Jesus did I find him and establish that personal relationship. So I love that quote and that it inspires us to have our own relationship, no matter whether we're going to church or not or what religion we are. But also I push back a little bit as him using that as a def- 
like attacking churches mm-hmm. that they're not really teaching Christ because you can't force someone to believe in Christ. You know, you can't you can't facilitate an experience. It's whether you're accepting of the spirit of Christ in your life. Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. And one reason I'm excited to have you here, because here we are pushing back against John Eldridge as fast as we get in our chairs. Yeah, Nan. Well, I wanted to add one thing, and, and maybe it's just a perspective on that, because I know what you're saying, and I agree with it in some ways. But I have to say for myself, sometimes how things are—I didn't know I had permission. I think for a lot of my life, I didn't—or or I'm slow. <laughs> not slow. But I didn't—I said, oh, wait. That's even a thing. It's it was sort of that's a thing having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? So for me, I don't know that I knew that that was a possibility. Mm -hmm. So I think my husband and I just got back from a trip to Europe and we were at some museums and looking at art pieces and, and not just the art. To be honest, we were in two major cities and walking around and looking at people and it was kind of gloomy, cold weather and everyone was not making eye contact and really looked kind of disconnected and sad. And part of me wondered, do you know this is even a possibility? I it, And that may or may not really be um, religion's fault, but there's certainly a lot of people who are confused and have had bad experiences, so they just don't want to touch it. It's like, ouch, that hurts. I don't want to know about it. And yet that is the very source of healing. So I I do think sometimes people just don't know where to look. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, let's talk about religion. Let's just bring it out. I, because I, I know several people who stopped reading the book because they felt like John Eldredge was attacking religion and whatever their religion. It's interesting because if you get all different religions, I'd be so interested to talk to people of so many different religions and say, how did you feel when you read this book? So they stopped reading it. And towards the end of the book, he says, listen, I, I'm not saying religion is bad. I go to church every Sunday. He's a religious man. But yeah, this was hard. It's hard for some people to be able to hear someone say something that matters to you maybe isn't working right, or we're looking at it from a perspective. So I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I wrote down on under that quote, my Jesus. And I had a friend recently at church and she kept calling him my Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I started to fall in love with that phrase and just allowing people to have their own Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? We all, no one knows him personally, at least I don't like, Mm -hmm. you know, like physically. So we all are just kind of interpreting the scriptures. We're interpreting our experiences with him. We're interpreting what everyone's telling us about Jesus. So I used to go to church and hear people talk about, you know, like Jesus healed me of this and this, and I'm sitting next to the lady that wasn't healed of cancer. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't feel right. You know, Jesus doesn't heal everyone, but allowing them to have their own personal Jesus just changed that experience for me of allowing people within my religion, outside my religion to have their own experience with their Jesus and allowing me to have my Jesus. Yeah. And so that was kind of, I think, a pushback against religion that we all go mm-hmm. through in our maturity, our spiritual maturity journey is um, allowing people to have their Jesus, having your own, finding your own Jesus, not mm-hmm. having your parents' Jesus, you know, your religious leader's Jesus. But so. so when you say having your own Jesus, you're not saying like, make up your own God and have him, but you're saying your experience with Jesus. Mm-hmm. What what is your What have you learned about him? How have you felt him or seen him in your life? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think just like you, Christy, I bet people that have experienced you in all different settings would describe you differently, right? Like your kids would probably describe, yeah, (laughs) your kids would describe you different than I would describe you, right? The different roles you play and allowing Jesus to like, some people need Jesus to fill a different role in their lives at different times. And so I love that the book talked about that, like his different personalities. He's not just loving. We were taught so much that Jesus is loving and a lot of people, that's the only personality they can give him. But allowing him and finding his different personalities and allowing him to fill different roles in your lives. Well, I also think I come from a family of six kids, and I would venture to guess that all six of us have different takes on each of our parents. Absolutely. Because our, you know, we came at a different 
I'm towards the end of the family, so I think I got the more relaxed version of my parents. But but we all have such unique things. And so how we form meaning around things is is unique. And I think it gets tricky. Like I said earlier, I love language. And I think as I've learned a little bit about language acquisition and how someone in their head is is maybe thinking, oh, you know, as a baby, they're thinking, oh, you know, that thing that I hold on to that has a drink in it. And, it, and when I feel thirsty that I really want that thing. And in many different countries, you know, we call the baby bottle something totally different, but we kind of in our heart know what that thing is and, and maybe what it means to us. But every once in a while, we kind of get tripped up on the different ways that we say it or what we mean when we say something. Mm-hmm. I really do love his invitation to consider has your religion kept you from knowing Jesus Christ? Have the practices that you worry about if you're doing or not doing kept you from coming to know him, from feeling his love and his healing? And the answer for me is yes. So many times in my life, the answer is yes. I have I have cared more about what the people sitting in the pews think than the person that I'm going to worship thinks. That's just been something that I've battled and that I will probably, well, I hope the closer I get to Jesus, the more I can let that go. But I appreciate his push on anything that keeps us from knowing Jesus. I was discussing this book with my husband, and he was sort of struck by all the, some of the chapter headings, not all of them, have pretty eye-catching titles like or or unusual titles i guess adjectives scandalous scandalous disruptive mm-hmm. extravagantly generous fierce intention uh, i don't know if that's one of the i just wrote that down but it then is. and then the other one was cunning mm-hmm. which i think when you hear that and you think Jesus is not cunning because I actually, yeah. Before you go, I mean, I want to keep hearing what you're saying, but those are ways that he described his personality, right? What you just said. Yes. Playful, fierce intention, human, extravagant generosity, disruptive honesty, scandalous freedom, cunning, humble, true, beautiful, loving. Okay. So keep telling us. Well, so I actually looked up just for kicks, the word cunning. And the first definition I had said, do things in a clever way which he really makes that point. And then the definition that I read said, often by deceiving other people. So I think there's this, you know, using the word cunning is an interesting thing. But to me, the point he's driving, which is so obvious if you read the whole book, is that he wants to wake you up out of a deep slumber and have you look at things from a new angle. And so you have to, for me, I kind of had to relax for a minute and realize What's his intention here? And I think his intention is, I want you to get to know this amazing, rich, full person, and you may have only experienced this very tiny portion of him in your religious experience up until now. And so I want you to know the whole Jesus and and really think about that. I love that. I want to talk about that chapter. (laughs) I do want to talk about it because that one was I, I still, just the other day, I'm like, I still know about cunning. And then I'm looking up synonyms. Well, what could, what are other words? Because to me, cunning means I want to deceive you. Right. Like I'm trying to deceive you. And that I don't believe for one second that he's, and, and if you read the chapter, he describes what he means. In mm-hmm. it, and I want to talk about it. But yeah, that one. Did you come up with a better word? Because well, I've been trying to also, because I don't like cunning. I think it has such a negative connotation in our lives and but. Yeah, did you so come I, up with a better one? So someone suggested clever for me or and and then I liked when I looked up synonyms, I liked artful. Mm. Because that's what he's describing in there is how he presents something to get someone's attention or you know, he talks about, oh, I don't know. Should we go to cunning right now? Okay, let's talk about it. (laughs) You will appreciate the mastery of Jesus only to the degree that you understand the minefield that he walks. He is advancing against the prince of darkness in a bid for the human heart. The whole situation is booby-trapped. Satan already has the upper hand. He took our hearts captive when we fell back in Eden. Some he has sneered through abuse, some through seduction, others by means of religion. Oh, how hard it is to rescue the human heart, to dislodge people from their chosen means of survival without toppling them into resignation, despair, or defensiveness. So that is in the chapter of 
cunning. That doesn't seem deceptive to me. That seems like generous. I'm going to ask for the thing that's actually going to bring you peace. I'm going to ask for the very thing that's going to help you the most. Well, just a couple things for me. One is I just really think, given how much thought went into this book, that he's chosen the word cunning on purpose. And if the only purpose is that it really stops you and momentarily offends you, you get to sort of unpack it and say, was Jesus really trying to deceive anyone? And I think the answer for me is no. Yeah. His, You can look at his intentions. You can see the fruit of what he did. And everything he did was for others to bring them to his father. So I just, I come back to, I think I like the word clever probably better. But clever may not have really engaged a lot of thought. It, yeah. Cunning's like, I don't know. That doesn't feel like the cunning that I know and like. Yeah. Well, Nancy, I love the idea that it made you stop and think because I totally pushed back against it. Yeah. And it's not until we push back and have a critical thinking moment do we grow, right? Like you said, if he had been just a nicer term, we probably would have been like, yeah, he was kind of fun. You know what I mean? But um, I love that it took deeper thinking, right? Because I've read that cunning chapter a few times because I'm too. like, I'm going to find a different <laughs> word. I'm going to find a better word. But yeah, it definitely makes you grow, right? When you have to push back against something or defend it, then that's when you learn and grow in it. So I love that you brought that up, that it's almost he's trying to be a little bit edgy so that we have to defend our beliefs, right? We're defending our own beliefs of Christ every time he pushes me. I loved also... I think it kind of goes wrong, and I don't know if it's its own chapter, but that disruptive honesty mm. as cunning also of just the story of the rich young ruler of him being so honest with him that it disrupted his life. And I think we all have those people in our lives that we push back against that are honest with us, but it's what we needed, right? And for Jesus to be that honest person is um, definitely makes us grow and reconsider and look at life. So. Do we have those people in our lives that are honest? <laughs> I'm curious. I'm serious. I, I I don't know that many people allow honest people in their lives. They don't like it. Let me share this from chapter seven, disruptive honesty. And by the way, this was my one of my favorite chapters of mm -hmm. the book because I believe this is this is a space that we we've decided that nice trumps honest. Mm -hmm. I believe that's in almost any religion. I, I, we don't teach it that way, but we live it that way in so many different ways. In chapter 7, Martha demands Jesus take sides. He does, but not as she expected. He takes her side by speaking to what is going on inside. When, when Martha's like, hey, what do you think? And, he, and he, he responds in a way to her that is not, it's like, no, Martha, here's the truth. Well, she wanted him to correct Mary, right? Yes. And then he points out where she could have grown in that situation, what she could have learned. So yeah, that idea of disruptive honesty, it just made me think if he had been telling everyone what they wanted to hear, everyone would have loved him, right? And we know everyone wasn't accepting of him. I almost wrote down he wasn't a beautiful politician, but I thought, oh, even handsome, like the opposite of a beautiful outlaw would have been a handsome politician, right? Oh, like we read in the scriptures <laughs> that he wasn't like handsome. Like, yeah, he was just a, he wasn't a, a, a desirable man, by described. his looks, yes. right? And then we're learning here that he wasn't also telling people what they wanted to hear. He was telling them exactly what they needed. Yeah, I love that idea of the contradiction between a beautiful outlaw and a handsome politician. That is beautiful, Sarah. <laughs> At the beginning of this chapter, he says, may I remind you that whenever you're watching Jesus, you are watching love. You can always hold that up as you encounter startling passages like this one. Quote, I am at this very moment watching love in action. End quote. But how in the world is this love? It doesn't even seem polite. And then he goes on, reminds us of some of the things he says to, you know, Martha or to the Pharisees or to his apostles that are coming, you know, get thee behind me, Satan, he says to one of his apostles. Like, yikes. <laughs> well, I think. I think one of the reasons it's so, I, mean, I think one of the reasons we're struggling to come up with a word besides cunning or clever, we, it would be lovely to have a word to encapsulate who Jesus Christ is. But I think of it as an image of he's holding a plate or a platter and he somehow manages to balance saying something honestly, having a heart that's still loving. Because sometimes when I want to get honest with someone, there's a little bit of a jab, and I, I can't explain it, but it, there's a little bit of 
my own pains coming out. And so I, I'm going to tell you what's true, but it's not usually from the most loving place. It's from a place of my own pain that I'm dislodging. So somehow he manages to say the truth and be loving and approach things in a way that's perhaps unconventional or in an unexpected way. So there's a degree of intelligence and, and emotional intelligence, reading the situation, knowing what's needed for this particular person that is so all-encompassing, there's not really a word for it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. If we go back to Martha, John Eldridge tells a story and he says, Jesus is sharp enough man to know not to stick his head in a hornet's nest. These family quarrels have a long tangled history, like Middle Eastern politics. Come to think of it, these quarrels are the long tangled history of Middle Eastern politics. Martha demands Jesus take sides. He does, but not as she expected. He takes her side by speaking to what is going on inside. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus is the guest, by the way, in her home. She made the dinner. If it were me, I would have probably tried to diffuse the tension by offering to help Martha myself, skirt the issue, but that would leave Martha in her self-righteous snit. I absolutely love the loving courage of this man to say what everyone else knows but won't say. Jesus' tone, and this speaks to what you were saying, Nancy, seems very different here than with the earlier Pharisees. This is a softer blow. That That is because he's dealing with a softer heart. You get the sense that Martha, though snarky at the moment, would be immediately softened by the truthfulness of his words. This is their first reported encounter, but the sisters and their brother Lazarus go on to become close friends of Jesus. Martha's home is his first choice of refuge whenever he's traveling near Jerusalem. Apparently, his disruptive words were just the right touch at just the right moment. I love that. I love that he's willing to be honest. Well, I think the, the what it's asking of me then is this big how. How? Because it's it's the reason people are not always saying what's true is they don't know how and they don't have all those things lined up. My heart's in a really good place and I and is this the right moment to yeah. do it? Do I do it privately with someone? Do I in a room full of people call them out? Yeah. You know, and, and then if you wait too long, it's like, it's probably not relevant anymore. Yeah. Well, John Eldridge has an opinion on that. And I want to, I just said, I love that he's willing to be honest. I think the truth, I, I want to say that differently. He is honest. He is the truth. So it's not a willingness that's just who he is. But John Eldridge answers your question. He says, let's be honest. Why aren't we more honest with each other? Because it'll cost us. Socrates didn't exactly get a warm reception for telling the truth. John the Baptist got his head handed to him on a platter for telling it like it is. Kill the messenger. We don't want to pay that bill. If we speak as honestly as Jesus does, if we even venture into the hallowed sanctuary of someone else's precious sin, it's going to make the relationship messy to say the least. Why won't you tell your mother-in-law that she's a fearful, controlling woman? Why won't you tell your pastor that his children hate him, hate his sanctified hypocrisy? Why won't you tell your best friend that most of the time they're selfish and self-centered and you carry all the burden of maintaining the relationship? We're cowards. That's why. As I push a little more deeply into my own motives, I realize I just don't care enough. And he goes on to say why he holds back. But I like your question, Nancy. Why am I holding back? Why am I not honest? It goes all the way back to, I'm just afraid. I don't, I don't want someone to push me out. I don't want someone to think I mean, instead of, I'm going to stand in my integrity. Well, and I feel like I had some pretty solid training as a kid, and this is not a call out on my parents in particular. I think just that was sort of the mode of living that most people in good society, you just, you don't say everything you're thinking. And there's there's people who actively teach you, not oh, no, you don't, you don't really we don't tell say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I just think we fear, right? I think you touched on that at the end of your comment of, with just the fear of the pushback of what if we hurt their feelings. And um, I love John Eldred's, his whole um, chapter on freedom. And just he had such freedom because he was totally secure in who he was, first of all, 
But also, he knew the intents of people's hearts. Like those two stories of the rich young ruler and then Martha, like it says he looked on them and like knew the intents of their heart. Um, So that's some freedom that I don't have. (laughs) And he could keep the emotional out of it, right? Like I'm thinking of parenting. It was never personal to him. Like I think of those fact versus opinions that we're supposed to kind of monitor our thoughts and our what we say by and um he was just stating facts and he had them all where we get our emotions and our connections with that person and our fears with that person all tied up into what we say but yeah I love that he did it and with a sense of humor sometimes I had never read that get the hints Satan or get behind me Satan like with kind of a joking tone like Mm -hmm. you know you you know taking away my whole purpose here is Satan. Like, you're yeah. acting like Satan. Like, maybe that was with a total twinkle in his eye and a little wink. Like, I, <laughs> wrong <guess> side. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So yeah. I love reading some of these stories with that idea of a little bit more sense of humor to him. Because I think a lot of times when people say, oh, God has a sense of humor, it's usually when something went wrong in their lives, not when something's really actually funny and enjoyable. That's so true. And he points out in this book as well, all the... all. Like to watch um, puppies play or bear cubs roll down the and and they make us laugh and they make us smile and this is he's created all of these things that bring joy and light into our lives so I I really love that too his one of his main points is pointing out the personality of Jesus Christ and so often we're st- we get stuck I'm curious when you hear the word Christ like what comes to mind. Not a lot of the characteristics, like the the kind of the way that John Eldridge uses adjectives. Yeah, it's a little bit more serious or quiet, and you're probably sitting in a pew, and it's you're being kind, and yeah. you're, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but not a lot of the things he's describing in this book. Yeah, I agree. How about you, Sarah? Yeah, I think if you say that, like, think Christ, like you think of someone serious having a spiritual moment. But um, I love the quote, does Jesus have a sense of humor? Well, he created laughter. And think of the crowd he dined with. These rubble rousers quickly earned of Jesus a reputation as a drunkard and a glutton. And it wasn't because they served water and crackers. This was a wild group. Surely a crowd got rolling in laughter with time to time, if only from the joy they were experienced being with Jesus. And like, I just think it's so important that we are allowing the joy of the gospel to be seen in our lives. I think we only point out the spirit or spiritual experiences when they're like solemn, like I'm crying because I feel the spirit. And I'm like, can you guys feel it? That's the spirit. (laughs) But I just think of, um, as I read some of these experiences of some of the times when I'm with my family and we're just like laughing and enjoying it. And I'm like, this is heaven this is what I want heaven to be like. It's not when someone's up there, you know, like bearing testimony or correcting, you know, like behavior. But I'm just like, I love that idea of God created laughter. Like I feel connection with people and want to be with people when we're having a good time and laughing. And I even love that like rebel rousers, like just having fun, like not even spiritual fun, but like actual fun, joking around, teasing people. So yeah, I love that too. Just all that he created to consider the personality in those things. I, 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 agree with, I agree with that so much. When, Sarah, you brought up the chapter 8, Scandalous Freedom, Jesus doesn't need, this is from John Eldridge, Jesus doesn't need to come in contact with the leper in order to heal him. There are many accounts where all he does is say the word and people are healed, even people in a county away. Yet he touches, touches him. Why? Mark's version of the story says that Jesus was, quote, moved with compassion. He who is so immovable is actually moved rather easily, moved for all the right reasons. And then he goes on to talk about the Sabbath day in that chapter and that Jesus is free from what people think. He has this scandalous freedom, which just love that. So so when we think of being like Christ, then if I'm working on letting go of what people think of me, I'm I'm becoming like him. That's one of his personality traits. Okay, what other chapters? I love the chapter on humility. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, for me, one of the bigger takeaways. And I've even talked to some people in my life about it and had them kind of have some big ahas around it too. Because... And I and I was talking actually to some younger women 
and saying, I think it's a really cool thing to think about when you look, especially here in Utah, we've got these beautiful mountains and all of these things. Jesus had the ability to, he had the physics and the all of the science and everything to create these things, but he was willing to come here and have to learn everything the way the rest of us do. And I love the example he says, this is a cup. Can you say cup? And <laughs> and I think that was a big aha for this one particular person that I was talking to, but it, it had affected me in the same way that I never really, my entire life considered that it required him, certainly in the scriptures, you know, he condescended. There's, there's certainly reference, but it, it's in this more grandiose way and not in this, like he actually had to learn to tie his his shoes and and not have the need to be, oh, you know, I I mean, I actually made this. Yeah. I made all this. <laughs> Can I say cup? Because I made I, the wood that made the cup. <laughs> because I sort of jokingly sometimes I want people to know, like, I made this dinner. I mean, it's really good. Don't you I think know. it's, you know, so I kind of will seek out Absolutely. that kind of affirmation. And he's just like, nope, just I give it to me like everybody else is getting it. And I'm, and even when he's waiting in line to be baptized, baptized, oh, it's like, oh, I know I, I actually have preferential seating and I should be the, it just, he, he stood in line to be baptized. The, the son of God is like taking his turn. He's just waiting for his time. And the way John Eldridge describes it is so yes. good. I love this from the book, Nancy. Yes. A hundred times to what you said. This is how John Eldridge describes it. The eternal son of God spent nine months developing in Mary's uterus. Jesus passed through her birth canal. He had to learn to walk. The word of God had to learn to talk. The word of God had to learn to talk. He who calls the stars by name had to learn the names of everything just as you did. This is a cup. Can you say cup? Cup. You know, like you said, Jesus wasn't faking it when he took on his humanity. Think of the implications. He he who never tires, never slumbers, accepted the need for sleep. Every night. How deep was the exhaustion that kept him dozing right through the gale, waves crushing over the boat? Jesus ate every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He needed to. He had to trim his toenails. He who clothed the lilies of the field with greater glory than Solomon's splendor had to do his laundry, squatting, riverside, rinsing the dust from his worn garments like any other peasant. That was so moving for me that someone who didn't have to do any of that for me, because I know what tired feels like. I know what laundry feels like, all of those things, that he would be willing to do that for me. He didn't have to do it for him. He did it for me. I love that too. Yeah, I love that. Um I think when we were talking earlier about kind of the pushbacks against religion is one of the things I got from religion is that Christ was perfect. The more I think we're taught that, it distances us from him, especially I think as we are not being perfect, right? It Mm -hmm. just, we put this boundary in between us and Christ. So when I was reading that, I loved that whole paragraph that you just read also because it gave the humanity back to Jesus, right? And it almost bridges that perfection gap by giving him humanity. And um, yeah, I almost felt myself like feeling sacrilegious, right? Like these thoughts of like, wait, was Jesus not perfect? Did he fall down when Mary taught him to walk? Yes, of course he fell down. That wasn't not being perfect. That was a learning process. And um, another book I'm reading that's The Jesus I Never Knew that goes along these same lines was talking about how not being perfect wasn't not making mistakes. It was not willfully rebelling. And so that was a like almost seems sacrilegious, like, oh, wait, he made mistakes. But of course he did. You know, he didn't say cup right this the first time. But Jesus was learning through his humanity. He had to. And so then here's where I get sacrilegious and you guys can push back on me. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> hey, did he learn and grow in his empathy and compassion from performing the atonement? Is the Jesus in the Old Testament really a little less compassionate? And a little harder with us because he hasn't yet experienced his humanity. To the fullest degree. Yeah. He hasn't experienced yet that full atonement that every single one of our pains, our sins, our grief, 
But then after he experiences that, is he a little bit more perfected? And I don't know. I don't know the answer. It feels a little sacrilege, but it helped me go there. So I don't think it's sacrilegious to ask. I, I'm going to think about it. I've never thought about it. That's a really good question, Sarah. I love your deep thinking. But if Jesus chose a genuine humanity and drew his power. So Nancy and Sarah and I have been chatting here, but anyone who knows me or my business knows that Annika is has, is such a big part. And she reads the books that we read and she sends in, you know, questions and quotes from the books to help me uh, prepare for these podcasts. So I've invited her to come here today and she's sitting here by me. And when you come, Annika, you got to come right into my mic. But there's a quote from the book that where it says, but if Jesus chose a genuine humanity and drew his power from the father as we must do, then we can live as he did. And Annika, I just really loved your thought there. You said this is a super interesting idea to me. Why? Um, I mean, I loved what Sarah said about perfection because I think just kind of a general narrative of Jesus is that he's perfect and that in this life we can never achieve that. Like it's impossible for us to be like him. And so it's almost like how much should we really try? If we can't make it there, why do it? And so I love this idea that it's less about that he is perfect and more about that he's complete and that he has complete balance in all of these things that we already possess as humans and that we already are doing. But he has just learned and is perfect at balancing all of the different aspects of humanity, I guess. Don't you like that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's not perfect. He's, he's complete and, bal and, and balanced. And I just love that, Annika. What I really appreciate is that there are different challenges for each of us because of our humanity. And so that question, when you brought that up, Annika, I just, I love that. Any thoughts that you guys might have about that? Um, I just saw a quote this week that said, being clean isn't about being perfect. It's going to the one who is daily. And when Annika was just talking, I just thought about that. Like, instead of drawing this, like, gap between us and his perfect, that's when we go to him without trying to, like, be perfect, right? <laughs> like, accepting our our humanity that we're never going to be there, but that he can bridge that gap for us. Yes. Thank you. Okay. You guys, we are going to wrap up. And Annika, I'm going to have you stay right here by me because I'd love to hear your yours as well. We touched on not even an eighth. I'm thinking of my measuring spoons in my hand. How small do they go? <laughs> the tiniest little measure, a pinch. We got a pinch of this book, Beautiful Outlaw. We've described that we love much of it. And there was some of it that was intriguing and that caused us to stop and parts we didn't like, the, you know, different descriptions that he used. I'm interested. What's your takeaway? Why was it important? What did you like about it? Why are you different because you read it? Why would you recommend this book to someone else, maybe? I was thinking a little bit about that. I think it's just a wonderful book because, as I mentioned earlier, it opened up a lot of different views of Jesus Christ that I had not really thought about before. It made him more real and someone that I could have in my daily life. And it reminded me of an experience that I had probably 30 years ago when I was a missionary in Germany. And I was new in the country and I was learning the language and the area where I lived, they weren't even speaking the German that I had learned. So I was like really struggling. And I was asked to give a prayer, I think, in a meeting. And I remember, and and I had had some anxiety prior to this in my life. And I thought, you know, some sometimes performance related or, or worrying about what people might think. And so I just remember having the distinct thought that this was between me and Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. that I was going to say this prayer and anybody else could listen in if they wanted to. But this was this was our moment together. And I've kind of taken that with me throughout my life. And I guess what I'm what I'm saying is that having the Savior with us in our daily life and having our Heavenly Father with us in a real and tangible way, where as we are doing hard things, as we are having those moments where we're bumping up against things that are really painful or difficult or scary, that you take that moment and you remember, this is actually between me and you. And if y'all want to listen, if y'all want to watch, that's great. It's up to you. But this this is between me and the Savior. This is between me and my Heavenly Father. So I'm going to 
dedicate what I'm doing, especially in the hard moments, to them. Mm-hmm. And so the, I try to remember that. So as I'm going about my day, I like thinking, even when it comes to the funny stuff, I like thinking sometimes my husband and I will be praying and he'll forget the name of something and I will kind of whisper. And I think, I bet Heavenly Father thinks that's kind of cute. That, you know, <laughs> he likes interrupting that. him in the middle of a prayer and saying, oh, don't forget this. <laughs> la, la, la. And so I, I just like thinking them as thinking of them as people who are very much a part of my day in day out life. And it makes a difference for me. So I think this book was valuable for me in the sense that it just even peeled away the layers of the onion even more so for me to really dig into who, who is Christ? What is his personality and, and have him be a part of literally as much as possible. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, I'd say I was right along the same lines. Um, I learn best through questions. It's how I teach. It's how I learn. And I, yeah, if you looked at my book, every margin, probably every page has a question like, oh, do I think that? What was he thinking here? You know, and so this book just made me question. And I love that. I, a lot of times in conversations, I'll be like, can I be a little devil's advocate? You know, like I love just putting another thought process in people's heads. So, um, and this one put that in for me, for Jesus. Like I had to, rethink who do I think Jesus is? What do I believe? I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of weeks I've just thought, what personality does Jesus have? Like, And I have asked several people that, like, if you were going to say a personality for Jesus, what would it be? And you can't say loving. Yeah. And so I just thought that so many times, even in my interactions with the people I love, I'm like, why do I love that person? And what, like, even assigning personalities to the people, because we don't very often, like, mm-hmm. what personalities do I love about this person or this person? And just um, trying to find those in Jesus and um, just even vocalizing it or putting it into words, what Jesus's personality is like and um, has deepened my relationship with them. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, like, oh, what personalities does he have And um, besides loving? And just I've grown in my thoughts of Jesus because of that question. It's so beautiful, his personality traits, that to consider all of them, not just, I love that you said, and you can't say loving. <laughs> I really like that. Annika? Uh, can I read a quote? Yes, I want you to. Okay. So, I like this. He said, experiencing Jesus doesn't have to be dramatic. Sometimes it is, but not always. When you think of all those days the disciples spent with Jesus, just walking here and there or reclining at the table, the big time miracles actually account for a small portion of those three years. There was just a lot of ordinary living. Jesus comes here too, in a tulip, a smile, a cup of coffee, or whatever else, nope, whatever beverage exactly you like, <laughs> the night sky. And I feel like that was, I don't know, like it summed up the book for me. Because as someone who's not really sure where I stand with religion or with God right now, like this book was really interesting to read and just to kind of have a different view of a savior who is like who you can know and who is more like you than thought before. Yes. Thank you, Annika, so much. Thank you. Each of you, you know, as you were sharing your final thoughts, I, I would consider or say that I, I, I feel like I was born with a faith in Jesus Christ. And yet it's only been as I've gotten older and had life experiences that I've come to recognize that I don't, I didn't know him well. I knew how to present like I knew him well, but I didn't know him well. And um, one thing that I've always struggled with is the idea of prayer. I, I believe in prayer with my whole soul, but I've always thought I'm not good at it. I'm not good at the kneeling down kind of prayer, but I'm kind of talking to God all day long. I'm, you know, when I'm meeting with a client and and there's something really painful or something that is hard that's going on in their life, in my head, I'll say, please help me to know how to help them. Or if I'm talking to my child or I'm out on a run or I'm in the grocery store, I'm, I'm talking all the time, but I've beat myself down lots of times for not, <laughs> for not being good at kneeling prayers. And I think one of the reasons I love this book so much is because the way he describes his personality is 
there is space for all kinds of different prayers. There's like, he just wants us to come unto him. He wants us to know him and to feel the peace that comes from knowing him. So I loved how he described his personality in all of these different ways. And I really, really want to I don't know, implement every one of these personality traits. By the way, we didn't talk about extravagant generosity, and that was one of my favorite chapters, too. (laughs) He's so extravagant. Thank you, Sarah, Nancy, Annika, for being honest and willing to talk about a topic. You know, you always hear people say, we don't talk about religion and we don't talk about politics. And I think, and what the heck are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) because there's a lot of stuff in our life where those things are intertwined. And and obviously, I believe we can talk about anything if we're willing to be honest. And truly, so all of these personality traits, you can, there's nothing you can't talk about. If you'd be interested in joining me on the podcast to discuss one of our books, please let me know by going to my website at coachchristy.life, or you can send me a message through my Instagram page, do the work podcast, or the Facebook at the same name. One of my favorite things that Jesus ever said, and John Eldridge touches this in the book, he says, after Jesus was baptized, two of his disciples walked by him. They came up to him and said, look, here's the Lamb of God. And they said, where are you going? Where are you staying? And he says, come and see. My invitation today at the end of this discussion about Jesus Christ, this beautiful outlaw, is to come and see. Learn how to separate Christ from your very human experience in your religion or in your relationship with someone who professes to love God but never acted like God. And see if he really is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Come and see if he will sit by you at your well. Come and see if he will raise your broken and very wounded heart. Come and see if the covenants of promises that you've made with him When you keep your word, your part, don't make you stronger than your natural abilities. Come and see Jesus Christ. Come and see his true nature and personality. I love the description of beautiful outlaw of Jesus Christ. It allows me to come closer to him. You'll have many choices in your days and in your week. I hope you'll choose to do the work. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, share a written experience, or ask me a question, go to coachchristy.life and fill out the podcast questionnaire, and we'll be in touch with you soon. There are no dumb questions or experiences, just opportunities to learn and do the work. Have a great week.